This is The Essential Guide to Surviving Humanity with Michelle Frost and Gareth Wax. Yeah, so today's a big one. I've called this Surviving Mortality. Surviving Mortality? It sounds a bit of a paradox, doesn't it, really? Well, it sounds like a it. dichotomy. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> dichotomy, If paradox. you're surviving mortality, it's no longer mortality. Exactly. It's immortality. <laughs> yeah, so what I really meant by that is surviving the fact that we're going to die. Folks, yep. I hope this is not a surprise, and I hope you're all sitting down, but you will, in fact, at some point, stop. <laughs> it's a guarantee. Yeah. That's one of the Death things in life that is guaranteed. I guess looking back at my own upbringing, I've talked about it before, my Catholicism, and this faith that I grew up with kind of gave you this, let's call it an illusion, that it was like going into a plane, and if you've been good all your life, you turn left into first class, business class, you know. If you've not been good, you'd have to turn right. It's quite interesting, because I remember always thinking that was so comforting. Yes. It must be comforting to people to know it's just a binary choice. You're either good... Or you're bad. And then it got me thinking, who the hell defines whether you've been good enough or bad enough? Well, I think that's where St. Peter comes in and then you go to purgatory for a bit. So it was kind of simple. I would go and maybe live with the angels. I mean, I was, you know, like Sam 7 or 8. And I think, well, I'm going to live with the angels at some point and I'm going to go to heaven or hell, but I hope I'll go to heaven. At the same time, I remember as a very young child lying in my bed at night and going, I'm not going to be here one day. One day I am not going to be here. And the, it was terrifying. I remember running down to my mother and saying to her, you know, what's going to happen to me? And so that big question was with me very early on in my life, as was fear of nuclear war. So I remember having no oh, peace wow. at night. So, so you had real problems with, with nuclear war as well? well? Remember, that was one of the big scares, wasn't it, in the, in the yeah, 70s and 60s. It was yes. like nuclear war. And we, we, at any point we could be we could be hit by the bomb well absolutely and and the fact was it felt like it was really imminent yes, all the time exactly it really was and it was sort of in the news all the time in yeah. a way that it's not now no no it was it was like a, it almost feels like it was a dream that happened to somebody exactly. else exactly so i had proper nosebleeds as a result of these fears not so much about dying but about the nuclear more move forward to me going to university as I've mentioned in other podcasts, I was quite unformed at that point. I was 17 on the day that I went to university, first time away from home. and A big shock. Yeah, a big shock. And really, I'm um, out of my comfort zone. And, I, you know, I, I was still, I think, a Christian at that point. If I had to say what my faith was. We both seem to have lost our faith at some point. So at that point, you would still say you had faith? Just at that point. And I, I mean, I was at Goldsmiths, very liberal left-wing university it was a very much a kind of right on a place where you would debate over coffee and I remember being confronted a bit on my religion and Catholicism and people guy kind of going well hang on a minute so you know you eat the body of Christ and I kind of really struggled to come back with anything but so you in a way you were trying to look for a justification yeah, well, I was trying to find my place in the university. You know, right. who is this girl? You know, we were all trying to work each other out. I was doing drama and French. Drama was all very exciting. But the French aspect of it was very much me getting into French literature and French philosophy. Of and course. as you know, a lot of the French uh, writers are philosophers. So I'm reading Camus, I'm reading Gide, Beckett, Sartre. Abstract works as well as quite chaotic, the ideas. Well, the ideas were, essentially, there is no intrinsic meaning in life. There is no meaning in life. And so Sartre, for example, as an existentialist, 
although he always claimed that he wasn't that, that that word didn't really apply to him. And Simon de Beauvoir, his partner, used to spend hours and hours debating this thing about the paths of our lives are not traced. There is no they. In Heidegger's words, he says, das man. You know, we talk about they are sort of why the government or they control our lives, therefore we're not in control of our destiny. Quite. But Sartre was saying, absolutely we are, and we have to take responsibility. And for some people, that is terrifying that actually it's just us us as individuals making decisions making commitments every decision we make we are creating our own destiny so he said i think i think the problem is when people start thinking they have to take responsibility for it all they only have to take responsibility in my mind for what really affects them or what's within their circle. Everything outside of that is not their responsibility. And I think it's when they, they try and increase that circle of responsibility to cover everything that they Well, Sartre definitely said that every decision you make is going to affect the universe. So you're not just making a decision for yourself, you're making it... Yeah, well, that's pretty world. damn... That's that, that could knock someone right off their perch. Yes. So that was his form of existentialism um, and this idea of total freedom. Neonism... Um, says there's no solution you can't you know there is no um, absolutely life is effectively pointless so, yes, so, and, and so the, don't bother trying to search for meaning in it yes, you're wasting your time yes and and you know in a way it's like well we're really just um, you know rather than committing suicide we're just sort of continuing on the absurdist which my favorite because it is absurd and that's the sort of word of the world do of they say fish <laughs> they say fish on a telephone. No, they say lobster on a telephone. My God, yeah. this woman knows nothing. Go on. They basically say, "Okay, we are going to try and create meaning in our lives, knowing that there is no meaning. So, working with this constant conflict that there is no meaning. There's, we are going to die, and yet let's try and create some kind of meaning." So, Beckett's famous quote, if I can just find it, in Waiting for Godot is they give birth astride the grave. The light gleams an instant, then it is night once more. So Beckett's my favourite because yeah, he... That's put pretty it, much it, though. Yeah. He's got it on... Uh, he's right there. Yeah, and, you know, Waiting for Godot, probably my favourite play ever, is about... Me, m- mine and Heather's as well. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So it's about two men, essentially, sitting on a log... Estragon and Vladimir. and Vladimir, of mm. course. I played Estragon. Did you? Yes. Did you? It's such a wonderful play. And they've Completely seriously, nuts. I think they've got a carrot and a boot, uh, maybe something else, and a tree. And they spend their time... And a hillock. I remember there's a there's hillock. There's a hillock. That's yeah, it. and then Pozzo and Lucky come That's along. That's it, Pozzo and Lucky. Yeah. Uh, who are sort of codependent, I think. Yeah, right. totally. And they spend their lives in a rather beautiful, humble way of discussing carrots what's inside their boots hand in hand from the top of the eiffel tower yes yeah. and what beckett's saying is what the, the beauty the, the sort of courage of humanity to just keep going even though we know we're going to die and there's some beautiful courage in in uh, vladimir and Estran to just keep going despite the fact that and i think there's a sense that Godot is going to come at some point. It reminds me of, you know, you talked about Judaism. It's you know, sort of waiting for Godot. Waiting for this phantom Godhead that will at some point pop out, but we don't know when. No. And the so coming of the Messiah. Yeah, yeah, so we're all sort of waiting for something to happen, ah. and then nothing does happen. So that was kind of... Um, I, I loved... I started to understand, you know, his minimalist approach to life. And as, you know, the years went on, he... Uh, 
he had a play with just Winnie just had her head above the sand and she just had a handbag and then you had footfalls which was just a footfall of um mm -hmm. uh, I think I think actually finally it was just the voice you know there was just one voice so I think what the extensionists are saying is there is no intrinsic meaning to life and what does that mean if there's no god what does that mean for us you know as human beings well it's entirely freeing of course yes and i think as soon as you stop you see as soon as you stop there being a godhead as soon as you stop having something that you have to commit time to praying to to hoping you're looking after to making sure you're putting flowers on the or, or whatever it is or or giving away bits of paper in the form of bread and and drinking wine too as you stop all that you've got one less responsibility in life which means you can just get on with living mm. and that means you can then fill your life with fun and music and entertainment and helping others and th there's no other reason to live that's I my think, own personal philosophy yes and i i think i think that's where we all want to get to i would say um but I mean, you struggle with this don't you yeah i struggle with it i'm just looking at um camus quote here go on um Hit me with some Camus. <laughs> the final conclusion of the absurdist protest is, in fact, the rejection of suicide and persistence in that hopeless encounter between human questioning and the science of the universe. Yeah, I reject suicide in the same way. Have, having gone through a phase where I thought of little else other than taking my life, I now reject it wholeheartedly mm. because, in a way, the random coincidence that has allowed myself to to fester and become this this human or this this entity called Gareth. Why should I waste that? I might as well squeeze every drop, every ounce of fun, energy and amusement out of it because I know it's going to be out and over, to quote Shakespeare, out, out, brief light. Mm. It might as well just make the most of the and, short and, time and we have. A lot of the theorists that talk about death, um, that's very much their theory. And what they talk about is that people who have a near death experience have terminal uh, illnesses. They're the ones that suddenly realize what you've just talked about. Life is short. I've got to do stuff. All the things that I put in my someday drawer, you know, going on those adventures, uh, saying to someone I love them, falling in love, they put them in the, the someday drawer. And they now take out the someday drawer. They look at their bucket list and they go, I've got to do it now. It's not a bucket list. It's a now list. Yes, and I think... Don't wait till you're going to kick the bucket. You do it now. But I think a lot of people are living in a in a sort of head on, hide in the sand world. Uh, it's called... Uh, there's a term which is constructive distraction. So most of us, and it sounds like, you know, you are an exception here, in the Western world, we don't talk about the fact that we're going to die. We put it... In fact, I spoke to someone, a good friend of mine in Australia. I have talked to quite a few people about, um, you know, their their feelings around mortality. He's a ex-lawyer, barrister, now sort of decided to retire and get closer to nature and moved out of Brisbane. Now, admittedly, his wife died a very slow death um, from a brain tumour, and it was so, horrible for him and his children. Terrible. terrible. And she was a beautiful spirit and soul. The last person that you would want to, uh, you know, have leave your, as a friend and a partner. Was he, a, was he a blood botherer? 
Was he a god botherer? Sorry. Did he have faith? TP and I both brought up Catholics, so we have a lot in common and we talk about that a lot. And the guilt and the shame that comes with that. Okay. So when I spoke to him about the fact that I was thinking about doing this podcast, he went, I don't he said, Don't I don't want to go there. He said, I don't want to look at it, I don't want to think about it. I just wanna <laughs> I just wanna move forward. He is not interested. But does he still have the guilt? Because I think the only way I think the guilt... to relieve the guilt is to look it full in the face and stick two fingers up. Yeah. And the only way you can stick two fingers up at something is if you if you acknowledge it exists. And he's saying, I'm going to push it under the carpet over there. It's going to loom at me. It's going to sit in the corner making faces at me, but I'm not going to give it eye contact. Yeah. And the, and the, funnily enough, one of the expressions they say is you look it in the, in the eye, you look death in the eye, and you go, I see you. I see you. And I look death in the eye that. and I laugh at it. Because do you know what? I, I may say, seem... Ladies and gentlemen, like I'm very sure of myself. But I tell you what, I'm unsure in my sureness. I'll explain what I mean. I'm a committed atheist, only because I don't know what the Latin is for. I don't give a beep. And what I mean is, by that, I'm open to alternative ideas. My current belief is death is it. But it actually represents the potential for something that could be the greatest adventure ever. Because it's the one thing I've never tried. And therefore, maybe, maybe there is life after that. Maybe I turn into a pink angel. Maybe I come back as a stapler. Yes, you may come back as a stapler. I think I probably will. But the point is, and they're very useful. (laughs) But the point is, I think, it's all very well to talk about that now, where we're fairly fit and healthy and we can sort of see some of our lives ahead of us there's another point where you get closer to death and I'm thinking about my father who until his very last hours was a devout Catholic and who believed in God and I remember him saying to me father father why have you forsaken me he literally said those words like that and I said dad what do you mean and he said I've asked him what's going to happen to me am I going to be okay and he said he never replied it broke my heart and he you know so at his very in his last hours but did you ask him has he ever replied to you before yes because dad prayed a lot and I think he had he felt that he was in conversation with God but that's when he needed him most and I remember him saying to me what's going to happen to me he was terrified he was terrified and I said dad I think you're just going to go to sleep and in fact weirdly I've spoken about my sub surrogate mother before and her partner Gervais had exactly the same last minute absolute terror and said ask the same question what's going to happen to me and I said the same thing I think you're just going to go for a very long sleep and he kind of felt I think he felt kind of comforted by that but we're going even beyond that here because then I had to I saw my father buried in the coffin and I remember again having a moment of thinking of his flesh and bones decomposing in the ground and that very concept of my father who I I hugged and sat on his knee was now in the grave decomposing was again I couldn't go there it was just the most but it even says in the bible that your body is just simply the vessel couldn't you couldn't you get your head around that? I can't get that? my head around it. I can't get my head around it. The, the, the vessel is now empty, and the one thing that God was going to take from it was the soul. So therefore, you shouldn't be pining for for the vessel. The vessel was an empty, 
an empty pint jug. I wasn't so much I was pining for it. I was visualising it. Right. I was visualising it. I was visualising him in down in that earth, my dad. You know, so I think this is what we're sort of doing it now. We're, we're actually discussing the, the the fact that you know the dying process, if you like. I remember that book. It's just come to me, the Tibetan book of living and dying. Right. And we were all sort of reading that in the nineties, and you know, again, the concept was was that a similar sort of time as Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. I think it was. <laughs> yes, I mean, it was all when we were getting you know into this sort of. Meditation is a really yes. great thing. Mindfulness and just you know, stop for a moment. Yes, and the book was about helping people die. Mm. Uh, and and in fact, a very good friend of mine, Jane, who very sadly committed suicide, and it's kind of ironic because she this became, affected you very badly. I remember it when did. it happened. Yeah, and she became a um, death midwife. So death midwife is something you can train to do, and it's about being there. Um, when someone helping them through the process of dying and and she said that she learned that there were different stages of dying you can also help them talk about their funeral their uh, funeral plan that's um, the practical that's the practical uh, side yes, of it yes but it was but I think I it's when it. people start accepting the fact that there's going to come to a point when it's all going to stop and you know the lead up to it as you say the last moments as you lead to it can lead to a complete radical change of state I'm really this is going to sound very odd but I'm really interested and intrigued to know what my own feelings are going to be as I mm. as I reach the, mm. the final just, termination. Well, I think what what the, the the theory around is is the more that we've talked about it, visualised our own death, what's what's the sounds going to be like, you know, planned it. Um, I have to actually say this. So, your flatmate Emma mm. took me on a past life regression, and part of this part. Of past life regression is you visualize your funeral or, or your death not your funeral your death and mine was so powerful i'd been through all these sort of traumas in my life and these horrible past life experiences really nasty the theme was sort of starvation and death and Good being Lord. emaciated yeah starvation like that was the thing and then my final vision was me in this kind of tropical juicy place i think it was like hawaii and there was all these fruit just dropping from the trees and then i'm there so lush lush and i'm this sort of big woman with big boobs and a huge belly and i've kind of eaten a lot of fruit and hanging off me are these little children you know like something so so you are you are mother nature incarnate yes exactly and i'm surrounded by loved ones and people are singing and they're helping me move into the next life. That's beautiful. Yeah, and it kind of helped the passage. From... You're like, do you know what? Heather is a spiritual being, as we, as everybody who knows me knows. She is associated with something she refers to as the goddess. And the goddess is typified by a big-bellied, large-breasted woman that brings all the children to yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... It's very voluptuous. And it's sort of very anti what we see as beauty these days don't we which is all kind of like toned and big lips and yeah and 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 thin slim. tiny waist yes huge tits <laughs> yeah so there ass, i was i think leg. i was some sort of hawaiian no, woman and there were these as i said these my loved ones were surrounding me heather was there in fact yeah. and these babies were hanging off me all kind of going hang on where was i you were there you were there yeah, my loved yeah, ones were there yeah. no, you were. it was kind of a female it's quite a female I would, I, do you know what i'd be doing i was the one in the booth narrating it all or you'd be drumming somewhere that's i'd be drumming, drumming, drumming into the one next life yeah. <laughs> so, it was, so it was really and i think that's what they're saying is right. 
just the more you look at it, plan it, think about it, meditate on it, acknowledge it, the more you can kind of be at peace in those final You're hours. You're normalising it, aren't yes. you? Yes. So I want to go briefly back to the extensionism bit because there's a wonderful article in, in Time which kind of captures this very well, which is really coming back to what you said. It's this idea, if, if, if there is no meaning, there is no God, it's kind of up to us. It's really quite liberating. Um, nothing oh, matters so quite liberating. as much. Now, although it's such a well, sh- those things that we put a lot of stay on, a, a lot of emphasis on, become less important. Thing, yeah, and there's m- much more headroom to deal with perhaps more important things. Well, yes, and 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 it's just reminded me of someone else I was talking about mortality with lovely friend of mine and she said she lost both her parents father very early and her mother quite recently and quite suddenly and she said her reaction was she was filled with love filled with love for everyone and i think love for your loved ones your friends is what we really appreciate when we're at that point of we you know someone dies we are at the point of death or we have this you know near near fatal accident which another friend of mine said was life-changing and he he broke all his limbs and he went inward and he went inward and he found this other possibility so i think you know what we're saying is absolutely as you said the things that we put pressure on achieving things earning a lot of money accumulating stuff that is no longer important this is from a wonderful article in the guardian by wendy seifert and this this title is nihilism is back in fashion and for the younger generation the idea that existence is meaningless is cause for celebration all right <laughs> So it goes, I'm usually wary of epiphanies, light bulb moments and sweeping realisations that reorder lives. But walking home one evening earlier this year, my existence shifted with a single passing thought. I was chronically stressed at work, overwhelmed by expectations, grasping for a sense of achievement or greater purpose and tiptoeing towards full on exhaustion. Then it hit me. Who cares? One day I'll be dead and no one will remember me anyway. I can't explain the crushing sense of relief as if my body dumped its cortisol stores, allowing my lungs to fully inflate for the first time in months. Standing on the side of the road, I looked at the sky and thought, I'm just a chunk of meat hurtling through space on a rock. Pointless, futile, meaningless. It was one of the most comforting revelations of my life. I discovered nihilism. Nihilism has existed in one form or another for hundreds of years, but is usually associated with Friedrich Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher who proposed that existence is meaningless, moral codes worthless, and God is dead. Yeah, but he also he was also a complete arsehole uh, uh, as well. So I don't know that we should Tell take too much to him. Tell me about the arsehole bit. Oh, he, he was a horrible, horrible man. And he was really a closet narcissist. So more along the sort of initial, when we describe nihilism as being pointless, there's no solution. Yes. It's kind of like a, yeah, a nihilism, isn't it? All of he, he, he considered himself above everyone. So as we said, the narcissist that like we've talked about before. Quite. And, you know, he had a lot of attention because this was all new. This well, was can you imagine? Of, yeah. yeah, yeah, can you imagine? Everybody suddenly thinks, oh, new bandwagon. Yeah, 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 exactly. There yeah. is no God. There is no God. So this decade, it has had a cultural comeback. Visiting the now central... We, hang on, we, before we get into that, let's throw down some ground rules my son refers to me as a boomer and i keep pointing out to him that i'm not a boomer mm. what am i michelle you are a we've got a chart generation on the wall here. x we're both generation we're x. both generation x we just slip inside that uh my darling wife however technically is a boomer oh she or right. part of the me generation okay yeah that oh. They came just shortly after the war, you see. Why no, the me generation, do you know? Uh, because no. it was all about, about me. me. <laughs> well, what she says is it's back in fashion. You know, this is something that I remember from, well, these people were writing in the 50s and the 60s. Right. I was studying in the early 
late 80s, early 90s. And it's not something that we sort of, I feel, we talk about much. I know when I was studying counselling, there is a form of existential therapy where you talk about life and death and, you know, those big questions. But it's not something we sort of, I think you and I probably talk about it a bit. Anyway, so she says this decade has had a cultural comeback. Visiting the central tenets, it's easy to see why. Nietzsche's argument that every belief, every considering something true is necessarily false because there is simply no true word feels chillingly relevant as we stumble through a post-truth reality. What he's saying essentially is all the values and the faith that we put are into things that cannot be proved. Mm-hmm. You are putting faith in the existence of a deity. Has anyone ever seen him? Has he only one had tea with him? No, you can't tell you that they exist. You can't say that anything is going to happen after we die. That's the other classic truth that's put out there. But it's pretty radical because we have the Western world has been brought up pretty much as a Christian Absolutely. world. So then she says... But even if it wasn't Christian, even if it was Muslim or Jewish or any of them, there was a whole series of faith-based beliefs mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. And I think to some extent the Ys and the Zs haven't necessarily had that no they've been disencumbered because the parents are disillusioned they're not going to church do you think it's not i don't think it's necessary about the parents i think it's about the onset of the media generation but i think for a long time the parents were going to church and you sort of go with them when you were young and you get but a it's sense not of... just that the parents would tell you what to believe wouldn't it yeah, i remember having he... i remember having a discussion with the parents and they said yeah we haven't yet uh, chosen her, her faith for her and I said, what do you mean, chosen her faith for her? Won't she make her own decision? And my faith is very much passed down. It's not something that I chose, it's passed down. and that's, It just was, right? Yeah, and so I'm coming back to really this moment when I was at university going, shit, if there's no God, why does that leave me, Michelle? Mm. Let's continue. So, uh, while Nietzsche and the Goths you grew up with make it all sound like a bummer, Generations Y's and Z's take on things is more upbeat and absurd. Mm. Modern nihilism has been honed through memes and Twitter jokes. Turns out that descent into nothingness can be pretty funny. It is. Yeah. So then she talks about, um, yeah, we're witnessing this new sunnier generation of nihilists um, and they're saying if meaning and purposes are overrated illusions, there is no, there is, then so is any sense that you're special or destined for greater things. Exactly. It's a balm for a group burning out over exceptionalism, economic downturns, performative excellence, housing crises and living your best on Instagram. There you go. So I just want to just talk um, about these two people that did a TED talk on nihilism. Elias Goldberg, a junior at Hammond Union High School in Vermont, took the stage to deliver this case for optimistic nihilism. It was aptly subtitled, or how to be a happy emo. Yeah. <laughs> During his presentation, he reminded the audience of fellow adolescents that if you died right now, it wouldn't make a difference. Big picture. If you were never born, no one would care. Mm-hmm. But life has no meaning. It's not a reason to be sad, he said. If our lives are needless, then the only directive we have is to figure out how to find happiness in our momentary blip of consciousness. Have I not been saying this you for have, years? You have. For instance, he helpfully suggested his audience get hobbies, help others, solve problems rather than creating them, and just try their best support each other do Mm. the things that make you happy as long as they don't hurt anybody else do we really need religion to teach us these things no subverting the stereotype of a teen nihilist Siddharth Gupta presented his talk Confessions of an Existential Nihilist Conventions of Existential Nihilist while wearing a pink button down shirt the senior of Kodia Canal International School in India confessed that his belief life was worthless gave him the opportunity to find meaning on all that I do yeah. Unburdened by a larger mission, he was free to seek out his own. I still believe there is no inherent meaning in life, but I now believe that because of this, there is no reason to give everything I have and try to create my own meaning. 
in this most likely hollow existence. Yeah, because what you've got to do is make yourself feel like you're worth something. And the best way of doing that is do the things that make other people happy and make you happy. And in fact, that was her conclusion. So one of the many criticisms of nihilism is that it opens the door to unchecked selfishness. It is a logical next step if you think there's nothing to gain from life except personal happiness and pleasure. Yet for people who have absorbed this message, the trend isn't towards greed, but community-mindedness. In the months since discovering I'm worthless, my life has felt more precious. When your existence is pointless, you shift focus to things that have more longevity than your own ego. Yes, if you know that your life would be meaningless, you want to help people while you're alive and also ideally after you're gone. Mm. And she says, I've become engaged in environmental issues, my family and the community at large. Once you make peace with just being a lump of meat on a rock, you can stop stressing and appreciate the rock itself. So I like that article because I think what we're saying, what we're both agreeing on, unusually, is that it galvanises one into doing stuff. And not just stuff, but stuff that means something. Yeah, but it's not enough just to say there is no God. It's not enough just to say there is no afterlife. Therefore, I may as well... You need more than that. You mm. need to say, you need to take the next step. So first first step is admit to yourself, in all probability, and I've mentioned this before, Occam's razor, which is effectively the simplest solution is most likely to be the, the correct one. And the simplest solution is that we just stop. Mm. You know, it's a much more complex solution to figure that there's this whole God system ready to look after you with angels and, and people take you on the other side and far more likely that it all stops. And if that is the case, then likelihood is, as our body decays, as it must, as it falls apart, that our life is relatively short. Therefore, in the period that's left, rather than just having a pointless, meaningless existence, which wouldn't nourish us, why don't we find things that give us pleasure? Let's pleasure other people. Going out there and pleasure other people by doing things to help them. So just to come back to you, <laughs> to balance that out. Okay, Thank you. It's a nice bit of balance there. <laughs> is that I, as you know, volunteer for a crisis line shout. And yes. this is for people in crisis. And I got a real shock last week. I thought I was talking to someone in their 20s. And she started by saying, I don't want to go on. I, I don't see any point in my life. I feel my, like my life is pointless. And she went on to talk about cutting and that her friends were encouraging her to cut. Now, I think you know that cutting for young people has been the sort of a bit of a fad, I have to say. And it's, you know, what they say, it relieves them from this terrible anxiety. And it's I was of... always told that cutting is often where you're trying to take control of your life. And it's one of the few things you can actually control. So the pain of cutting yeah. is a relief from the pain, the emotional pain of... Oh, I see. It's an outlet. Yeah, the emotional pain of... And, you know, she was really talking about existential stuff. We are talking a lockdown situation. So this is a girl who, it turned out, is 11 years old. And she's saying... I am of the suicidal generation. And I thought to myself, well, what is the suicidal generation? Whether this is something that she made up or this is it. And I actually did look it up and there's no, there's nothing that says that there's a So suicide. it's not a movement or anything? No, she just said, I don't know if you know, but I am of the suicidal generation. There must be something they're talking about on Twitter or something. I'm well, guessing. what I took it to mean was that this is a girl who's grown up watching, say, Greta Thunberg talking about the fact that We've ruined the planet. Mm. 
our generation, as in you and me, we've ruined the planet and she's angry and therefore she, we haven't left anything for them. There's no resources, there's not enough. And so she's growing up listening to, you know, probably looking up to an 18-year-old and going, wow, so if that's the case, I'm not going to be able to buy a house. I'm not going to be able to find a job. I'm not going to be able to live on this planet or my children aren't. I'm not going to be able to leave a legacy. That's a pretty depressing future. So, you know, in the end, I kind of, the whole idea of shout as you bring someone down from crisis to calm I think we've really found out that you know when she was in her calm state she realized that yes we have to just do deal with what we've got and find coping mechanisms which is what shout is all about is to find a coping mechanism but don't you think it's important that people embrace the nihilism and say it doesn't matter that, that effectively this leads to nothing it doesn't matter what matters is the now deal with the now and that's why i was talking about dewar uh, which is a, a a philosopher from the 19 early 1900s in midwestern america and he said stop thinking about way distant in the future stop over pondering about the past deal with planting the crops deal with feeding your family deal with living your life mm. and you know it's interesting because when we talked about that's uh, the self-help industry we realized didn't we that all the books came back to the same thing yes is be present be in the moment be, be now. Be grateful for what you've got. Yes. You know. So I think I'd like to end part one here. Part two is going to be looking at um, ways, I guess, more of our generation can look at dying, really face it full on, and get chatting about it. And it will be proper positive, I promise. Yes, it will. This has been the Essential Guide to Surviving Humanity with Michelle Frost and Gareth Wax. Mm-hmm.